Well, hey, good morning, all of you here in the room and online. My name is Hudson, one of our pastors here, and it is always a privilege and an honor when I get to get up here and share God's word with you all. But I'm especially excited about today because it is Advent season, which for many of us just means that it's cool enough in Scottsdale to wear long sleeves now. We're all right with that. But it is really just a fun time, and I love being in church this time of year. Specifically, I love learning about Advent, and I'm really excited to be talking about this third week of our Advent series. And so you've heard me say it a few times now, Advent. So what does Advent mean? And simply put, it means coming or arrival. And historically, the church has celebrated Advent, the month leading up to Christmas Day, as a way to ready and prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus's arrival on Christmas Day. However, the first Advent, Jesus's coming as a baby, was always meant to point forward to the second Advent. We have a promise that Jesus is returning, and that is the second Advent that we focus on. And the question should be asked, why is it that we celebrate Jesus's arrival? And we've been in the same series with our youth group, and I've been saying it this way to our high schoolers, and they tell me that if you can explain something to a high schooler, you can explain it to adults. And for my high schoolers in the room, I know you're an adult, it's okay. So here's how I've been explaining it to my high schoolers. Jesus is not Paris Hilton. Now I can tell by your faces, you don't quite believe me yet, so I'm gonna prove it to you. I was watching TV the other day and I saw that apparently Paris Hilton is getting married or got married or potentially is already divorced. I really don't know, but they made a show about this. And I was thinking to myself, why are we making a show and celebrating Paris Hilton? And here's why, nothing against her, but she's accomplished nothing. Like she hasn't done anything, yet we celebrate her. Well, the good news about Advent is Jesus is not Paris Hilton, and we celebrate Advent because of what Jesus came and did. And we've been looking at this series, Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, and next week will be savior, because Jesus actually came and did something. These were the roles that describe the work of Jesus, and we've been getting this framework from the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and it says this, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, that was last week the priestly role, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where we get his kingly role. So two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus as the prophet, not just a prophet, but the prophet. Prophets in the Old Testament, they would get a revelation from God and they would share that revelation to the people. But what we get in Jesus is not just a prophet, but the prophet, because he is the actual word of God. God himself made flesh. And so what we have in the person of Jesus is not just God's words, but we get God in the flesh living amongst us. And we get a great picture of who God is through Jesus as the prophet. And last week we talked about Jesus as priest. In fact, we talked about how his priesthood is the great priesthood. And the reason why is a a priest in the Old Testament would sacrifice an animal for the sins of the people. But we get in Jesus, because he was perfect, he didn't just sacrifice an animal for our sins, but he became the sacrifice for our sins. And he laid down his own life for us so our sins could be atoned for. But what's even better is Jesus is still alive today, which means that the line of his priesthood is still intact, which means his sacrifice was just as effective on that day 
as it is still today. And because of these things, we move into today, week three of our Advent series, Jesus is King. And my goal for this morning is to stir a holy anticipation in our hearts and in our souls for the second Advent when Jesus is going to return. And it's not hard this time of year to imagine what anticipation feels like. There's so many things that we anticipate during the holidays. Many of you right now, you're anticipating family coming into town, spending time with you. Maybe you're traveling to go see family. And maybe some of you are anticipating the holidays being over so you can kick that family out and send them back to where they came from and you can leave and come back home. We anticipate the different traditions this time of year. If you are like me, you anticipate all the food you are going to eat. If you are like my wife, you anticipate decorating the house. We anticipate getting time off work to be able to spend with our loved ones. If you are a student in the room, you anticipate being done with finals and being on winter break. As a pastor, truthfully, I have no shame in admitting I anticipate getting gifts I see the gifts stacking up under our Christmas tree. I'm ready for it. I'm pretty sure this is the year. I asked for it 20 years ago, but this is the year Santa brings me an easy bake oven. I'm confident in that. Come on. And as we think about the holidays, we think about the new year. And as I was writing this, it kind of dawned on me. I don't know that I thought we'd make it to 2022, but here it is. It's coming and we anticipate the new year, not just because of how the last couple of years have been, but because of how life is. We know that with the new year, there comes great things and there also comes challenges. There's gonna be plenty of trials that we go through. There's going to be suffering that happens in 2022, but there's also gonna be great things, new beginnings, love, new relationships. And we anticipate what that is gonna be like. And as we're sitting in this anticipation, we actually find ourselves stepping into the first Advent story. We find ourselves stepping into the story of the nation of Israel. See, we don't have much context for a king. You hear the role of a king or you think about the title king. We don't have much to compare that to. But for Israel, the title king, the role of a king came with a lot of baggage. And it starts all the way in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is an Old Testament book. And I like to say that the book of Judges is the wild west of Old Testament Israel. In fact, if you want to read your kids a story from the Bible as they're going to bed, pick any book besides the book of Judges. And if you have a friend who doesn't think the Bible is all that interesting, definitely point them to the book of Judges. It is crazy what is going on. Where we find Israel in the book of Judges is Moses has gone to Egypt. He's brought them out of Egypt under the oppression of Egypt and Pharaoh. And they've been in the wilderness. They've wandered the wilderness where they were disobedient and unfaithful. And God finally brings them into the promised land. And this is God's grace for the Israelites, giving them a land where they can dwell and live with him forever. However, they continue to be rebellious. They continue to have covenant unfaithfulness towards God. And so what happens is we see God's judgment and wrath coming out on them. And there's also just all types of chaos because of their sinfulness happening. And I think the best way to describe the book of Judges is the very last book, or sorry, the very last verse in the book of Judges. It's Judges 21, 25, and it says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is the cliffhanger that leads right into the book of 1 Samuel. And we get this scene in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the Israelites are finally fed up with their sin. They're fed up with their suffering. They realize that they have been unfaithful towards God and they're ready to change things. However, the problem is instead of looking towards God, they begin looking at all the other nations and people around them. And they go, what do they have that we don't have? 
Oh, they have a king. We want a king. And so they come to Samuel in chapter 8 and they say, Samuel, look, man, you've been our prophet and our judge for a while now, but you're getting old. And your sons, who you're trying to make our judges, they're evil and they're wicked dudes. We don't want them to rule us. And what we want is we want a king like the other nations to judge us and to lead us in battle, which is language directly rejecting God as their king and as the one who would lead them in battle. And this frustrates Samuel, but God comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, I know you're frustrated, but look, here's the deal. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And God says to Samuel, but I want, what I want you to do is I want you to give them a king. Give them their desires. But when you give them the king, let them know what that king is going to be like. So Samuel comes to the people. He says, look, God's going to give you a king, but that king is going to take what is not theirs. They're going to take what's yours and make it theirs. In fact, they're going to take your kids and make your kids their slaves. And the people go, we don't care. We want a king to judge us and to lead us in battle. So God gives them this king and it happens exactly the way God said it would. And one king after another comes and they are evil and they are wicked. And Israel continues on their downward spiral of destruction. However, there's one king in the midst of all these awful kings that does stand out. His name is King David. And it's said that King David is a man after God's own heart. And though he's a man after God's own heart, he still was like many of the other kings because he had a list of sins that was very long. But he is what we call a messianic figure. And what a messianic figure is, is someone in the Old Testament that is not the Messiah, but that points forward to the Messiah, has Messiah-like characteristics. And that is what we get in King David. And God makes David a promise. In 2 Samuel seven sixteen. God says to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this is good news for David. This is good news for Israel. There's going to be a king who sits on the throne forever from the line of David. But see, this was a future promise, a promise for things to come. And what happened after this was one evil and wicked king after another. And we get a great description of the state of the nation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. And I'm going to read this straight from the scripture so you can't get mad at me for what it says. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. The prophets in the Old Testament paint a bleak picture for the nation of Israel speaks a lot on the wrath that is going to come upon them for their covenant unfaithfulness towards God. But there is always a glimmer of hope in all of the prophets. And we get this glimmer of hope in Isaiah 9. And this is a passage you hear read a lot this time of year. I actually saw it on a Christmas card this week. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. And it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Catch this. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
My family had a tradition growing up where before we'd open gifts on Christmas morning, we would read the Christmas story from the Bible. And I personally love this tradition because what it did was reading the Bible before opening gifts made me feel justified and in indulging in consumerism the rest of the day on Christmas. So you might want to start that tradition with your family. And what was interesting was we would always start, when we would read from the gospel according to Matthew, we would start in chapter one, but we'd start with verse 18. And the reason we start with verse 18 is the first 17 verses in Matthew is a genealogy. It's Jesus's genealogy with one hard to pronounce Hebrew name after another. And many of us, when we have Bible studies and whatever else, we avoid those things because we don't want to say the hard words in the Bible. And I had the great idea to try to read all 17 verses with our fifth and sixth graders a couple weeks ago. And three or four verses in, they were making fun of me so much that I just stopped and got right to the point and just quit on them. So it makes sense why we don't read those first 17 verses, but what we miss in those verses is potentially the most important part of the Christmas story, of the Advent story. Because right in the middle of this genealogy, starting with Abraham going all the way to Jesus, we get verse six, which says, Jesse, the father of David. And you might say, well, that could be any David. Well, it says King David. And this is just one of the many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that is clear proof that he is the long-awaited messianic king of Israel. Jesus' birth takes place amongst the backdrop of oppression and anxiety for the nation of Israel. They have been oppressed and they've had people ruling over them for hundreds of years. And these prophecies that we would read in the prophets say that someday a king is going to come and is going to liberate Israel. And once again, Israel will become the nation that they once were. At least that's what they thought it was saying. And so you can imagine the hope that was filling the Israelites, the Jewish people, when they saw Jesus come on the scene. And Jesus starts doing all these things that they were told the Messiah was going to come and do. And there's a few scenes that Jesus does a miracle or says a certain thing and it dawns on the people. This is the guy we've been waiting for. And on multiple occasions, it says that they take Jesus and try to forcibly make him king. But then this thing happened one day. Jesus, he's entering Jerusalem on a donkey. People are praising his name. They're saying Hosanna. They're putting palm branches down at his feet. Sure that he's getting ready to go overthrow the Roman government, take his throne. Then that same week, Jesus gets arrested. Then he gets sentenced to death. And then he goes to the cross and he dies. And rightfully so, the Israelites are wondering... How can he be king if he's dead? It's a good question to ask. Good question to ask. And this is really where our whole story, or our whole series begins to come together. Because the Jewish people thought Jesus would earn the throne by overthrowing the Roman government. Jesus didn't earn his throne that way, but he did earn the throne. He did earn the title king. We read this at the end of the verse we've been reading in Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter one, the end of verse three, it says this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what does that mean? Well, Paul explains it like this in Philippians chapter two, verses eight through 11. And being found in human form, talking about Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is where our whole series comes together because Jesus is not fulfilling these roles, prophet, priest, king, savior, separately. It's not one day he's prophet, one day he's priest, one day he's king. No, at the same time, simultaneously, he is working out all of these different roles together. And what we see is Jesus as prophet, the word of God, God himself coming, subjecting himself to human form, but also being the priest and being the priest, offering himself as the sacrifice in perfect submission to God the Father, dying, paying the ransom for the sin that you and me are guilty of. And because he has done these things, we read in these verses, is that God has exalted Jesus above all things. That that is how he earned the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No one competes with Jesus. Jesus alone has earned the right to sit next to God the Father, which means that he is reigning and ruling as king. And this shatters every category the Jews had for this messianic king. Instead of being born in a palace, he was born in a barn. Instead of being born into a royal family, he was born into poverty. Instead of being crowned with jewels, he was crowned with thorns. And instead of taking his place as king, lifted up high on a throne, he was lifted up, beaten, abused, and naked on a cross. King David, he used his kingly authority to take a man's wife, and after getting her pregnant, to cover up for his own sins, kills her husband. Jesus uses his kingly power and authority that though he was sinless, he died to cover up our sins. It's not just that in the person and work of Jesus, we have a king. It's that in the person and work of Jesus, we have a king worth following and a king worthy of our devotion. And this is good news as we reflect on the Advent season because though he came the first time on a donkey, He's coming back the second time on a war horse. And I love the way that Revelation describes his coming back. It says that he comes on a white horse with the armies of heaven on white horses behind him. He'll have eyes like the flame of a fire, a crown full of jewels, a robe dipped in blood, a sharp sword coming out of his mouth with which to strike down nations and rule. And on his robe and on his thigh, he holds his title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is coming back to bring justice. He is coming back to do away with the evil and the pain and the chaos that wreaks havoc in our world. And as king, his kingdom will be fully established. The rulers and principalities of darkness will be destroyed once and for all. Man, as a believer, this should bring immense hope. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you're on the winning side. You're part of a kingdom that will reign forever the kingdom where the king lays down his life for his people. And though for now we get to choose whether or not we want to recognize Jesus as king, the reality is he's king whether we want him to be or not, but right now you get to choose if you're going to see him as that. But someday when he returns and every knee bows and every tongue confesses, there will be no choice. Everyone will recognize him as king. And for those who have submitted to his kingship, who have called him Lord, it's going to be a day full of joy. But for those who have rejected him as king, it will be a day of judgment. And so we should ask, how does this biblical and theological framework of Jesus as king 
applied to our lives? Why does this matter for you today? Well, to start, I can get up here and preach Jesus is king. And most of you will say amen to that. And if we were a church where people out loud said amen, you guys would be saying amen to that. Amen. They, hey, come on. First service gave me none of that. So let's go. <laughs> but we're nodding our head. Most of you in this room, you agree with me. Jesus is king. But the problem is in our lives way too often, just like Israel, we actually reject Jesus as king. And we begin looking around at everything else in the world, looking at what we want to make king of our lives. In fact, we have one heart, so we get one crown. And I just wonder what it would look like if we really examined our hearts, really examined our lives, and looked at where we are placing that crown. Money, material things, material desires, our careers, gaining recognition, your spouse, maybe the idea of a spouse, maybe the idea of a spouse and a family someday. We make our kids, our kings. I'm gonna say this one, you might not agree right away, but youth sports, or just sports in general, the number one religion in America, sports. And I don't actually know the statistic, but I imagine that it's not even close. If you looked at how many families on Sunday mornings were on the soccer field, the baseball diamond, the football field, compared to in church. We like to crown our sexuality, our sexual experiences. We like to just crown our experiences, traveling, posting about it online, going on a search for the inner us, the true us. We like to crown gossip and drama, or what the kids call the tea. We live our lives for what's going on in everybody else's lives and not even thinking about what we are doing by spreading those things around. And just so you don't think I'm biased, we can crown religion our king. Our king can become having such a knowledge of the Bible and theology that we actually miss out on a relationship with Jesus. The problem about what you crown is what you crown is what you worship and what you worship affects your life and the lives of everyone around you. So let's just call it what it is. When we think about what it is that we crown, we crown ourselves. And if the diagnosis is selfishness, then the antidote is humility. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that that is the exact context that Paul is speaking about when he writes that verse in Philippians. Paul is urging the church in Philippi to live a life of humility and to do so by modeling the example of Jesus' incarnation. As people of the kingdom, let's do our part to reflect the king. We do this by submitting to the lordship of Jesus, by working every day to be conformed to the image of Christ and taking his example by laying down our lives, considering others more significant than ourselves so that we can serve others, that we can love others ultimately so that we can be on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, like we spent the entire series in the book of Acts talking about. The first reason why it's important to understand Jesus as king is because who and what we worship affects our lives. Second reason is this. Jesus as king is the hope that we have to stand on through the trials and the waves of life. Look, we live in a broken and a messed up world. And those aren't just words that I'm saying as a pastor up on the stage to a congregation in Scottsdale. 
I was thinking about it with our staff. We had a Thanksgiving lunch. And one of the things I'm grateful for is how over the last two and a half years that I've been here, Illuminate and the people that come to Illuminate, you guys have become family. So when I'm standing up here and I'm saying this, that we live in a broken and a messed up world, I'm not just saying that to say it. I'm saying it because as a family member, when I look out this congregation, I know the things that you've been walking through. And as a pastor that gets to be with our students and with our families, I feel the weight of those worlds because I know those aren't just words for you guys in here right now, but those represent real things that are going on in your life and in your family and with those that you love. And the reason why I was so excited about this message is because as someone who loves this church and loves you guys and view you as my family, this is the best I can do. And I think it's doing pretty good to remind you that no matter what happens, a second advent is coming. Jesus is coming back. Our King will return. And when he does, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and he will wipe away the tears from the eyes of those who are welcomed in to his kingdom. There's a verse in Revelation 21. This verse has been a lot to me in my life. One, it brings me hope when I'm weighed down by just what's going on in our world and in our lives. But this is also a verse that really was instrumental in me coming into pastoral ministry because this is the reason that we do what we do. And it's a picture of the second advent. Revelation 21, verses one through five. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth, or for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So over the next month, you're going to see a lot of Christmas. Everywhere you look, you're going to see the lights and the trees. What I want you to do is, when you see the lights, when you see the trees, when you eat the food, when you hear the music, I want you just to pause and just consider what the second advent means for you. Our king is coming back and all things will be exposed and all things will be made right. So I wanna end right now, but here's, here's how I wanna end. I know right now, even as you're sitting here, there's a hundred things going through your mind. And as soon as you walk out of these doors, a thousand different things are gonna be grabbing for your attention. So I wanna take a moment right now, we're gonna take one minute at the end of this service to just pause and to just consider what that day is going to be like for you, that second advent, when Jesus returns, what will that day look like for you? For many of you, I know it's gonna be a day of great joy and rejoicing. But as I said, for, for some of you here in the room and watching online, it's gonna be a day of judgment. And if you're here today or watching online and you're saying, you know, I really don't know where I stand with God. I don't know what that day holds for me when Jesus returns. 
Well, there's no better gift you could be given this holiday season than the opportunity to accept Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and King. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners. We're born into a dysfunctional relationship with God because we are sinful and he is perfect and holy. But because of his love for you, Jesus, who is perfect, the only one without sin, died for us sinners to pay the ransom that we should have had to pay. It says that the wages of sin is death, but because of his perfection, Jesus fully satisfied the wrath of God for those who accept him as Lord. And because of his resurrection, those who believe in him share in his victory over sin, death, and the grave. The Bible says we are saved not through any of our works. There's nothing we could do to earn it. There's nothing we could do to deserve it, but it is a gift of God's grace. We believe through faith and faith alone. This is why we worship Jesus as King. So I'm gonna pray right now and then Travis is gonna to continue to play and you guys take a minute and just reflect on that second advent and the band's gonna to continue to lead us in song. Jesus, we thank you that you weren't just given the title King, though you would have deserved it, but that you earned it. And through this series, as we look at the prophet, priest and King, the different roles, the different work that you have done, Jesus, we get a beautiful picture of the king above all kings, the ruler of the world, the creator of the world, the one whom all things have been made and all things are sustained. Yet you humbled yourself to being a human, to living a perfect life and dying on the cross for our sins. And through doing so, you've earned the right to be called king of kings. And as we reflect on our lives and all the things that we worship instead of you, Lord, as we see the Christmas decorations and we reflect on Advent, let it stir an anticipation in our hearts to accept you fully someday as king when you take your rightful spot on the throne. But Jesus, until that second Advent, I pray that we would give you the throne that's in all of our hearts, that we would live and desire to worship you because you alone deserve it, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray as your people spend time reflecting on the second advent that you would meet them here this morning. In your name we pray, amen.